Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10 holds a principle that guides our actions and sets the tone for commitment. We see it here, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your head finds, or whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. This is a, a principle of commitment that sets the tone. In today's vernacular, we would say we're all in. In the poker vernacular, we're all in. So as we continue to lay the foundation here for this congregation and prepare ourselves for whoever God is planning to call to our family. There is one relationship that supersedes all relationships, and that's our relationship with God and with Christ. The New Testament refers to that as the way. So as people darken our doors, they will be at various stages and levels of commitment. We need to be ready to help them as they struggle with where they are in their journey. How ready do they need to be to commit to being part of this way of life, to give their lives to God, and to be baptized? Today, I would like to examine the concept of commitment as it relates to baptism. And we'll do so by taking a look at the first Pentecost in AD 31, and how Peter's sermon affected the new believers. And then, once we're finished there, we will take a look at two points to consider, just two points as one assesses their commitment to this way of life that we know as baptism. And hopefully with this in mind, we're able to help those who darken our doors, as I'm sure we pray they will. Which lends me, as a a sidetrack, having a conversation with the landlord of our building today, uh, the wife of the pastor, Rosalie, who you may see from time to time. And uh, she was having a conversation with, with us, with uh, myself and Marquise, who also, by the way, thanks us for uh, all of our prayers that we did over the, last, the course of the last few weeks as she uh, uh, went through the, the struggles with, uh, in her building. And she's uh, very happy to be back with us, and she did ask me to pass on her thanks for our prayers in that regard. But Marquise had made a statement to uh, Rosalie, saying, uh, you have a very lovely building here. And... Every time we say something like that, she is quick to point out that this is God's building. And in their mind, we have as much right to this place as they do. Because God, when God works with you, it's his building. And it's, it's, not, it's not so much we're renting from them as we're sharing this building, which is, which in, in, uh, is absolutely a blessing for us. So we're, we can be thankful. And, and uh, they tell, every time I talk to her, they, they tell me that they pray for our congregation that uh, they pray for us, that God works with us to, to get this message out. So uh, it's, it's certainly a, a unique experience being here. So as, again, as we continue to lay this foundation, let's take a look at this concept of commitment as it relates to baptism. And this will not be an all-encompassing message on the technicalities of baptism. What we're talking about here is commitment. And we can take the commitment, commitment lesson from baptism, we can apply it to our marriages, we can apply it to our our family relationships, we can apply it to our work relationships, 
and most importantly, our relationship with God. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2 as we start. Acts chapter 2. Way back to the very first Pentecost, back in AD 31. of this for time's sake. The first four verses obviously are just setting the stage, the, the supernatural phenomenon that was going around in Jerusalem at the time with the rushing mighty wind and the tongues of the divided tongues as a fire, and you can read that for yourself, the first four, the first four verses. Verse 5 continues to set the stage, saying, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So this is one of those three times a year where all Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Holy Days. And they were devout men. The same word devout is used in other places in Scripture to describe Apollos, Cornelius. Devout doesn't mean called. It's the Greek word from Strong's 2126, Eulabis. Eulabis. It means careful, cautious, reverent of God, and pious. Basically, good people who believe in God but they were devout we know and in those examples which we won't take time to look at today Cornelius and Apollos they still had to be baptized so they believed in God, they loved God they believed what he had to say probably prayed they were devout but they still had to take that final step of commitment much like everyone knew Lisa and I would be married but there was kind of that lull between that relationship and actually having the, having the marital relationship. And it was it, so, sort of in, in that respect, they were devout. Verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? And even others said, they are full of new wine. So we see this setting. Again, these were Jews. These were people who, who adhered to the Old Testament law, but they were scattered uh, in their protection from, from the, the ramifications from the various uh, uh, empires, much of what the, the youth are going through. And we're not uh, in necessarily in Jerusalem anymore, but we're scattered through parts all over the Middle East. And three times a year, when, when they could, they would come to, into Jerusalem to uh, obey the commands of God and keep the peace, and this was one of those times. But again, we noticed that despite their their being Jews, they all spoke different languages because by that time of being scattered amongst, they had uh, when you you're in Quebec and you can be a Christian and a member of the Church of God, but you might not speak English and speak French because that's how you're raised. And similar here. But again, notice the emotions. Notice the emotions here. They were confused. They're amazed. 
Some were mocking, but no one believed. They were devout, but none of them were, were yet followers. I take back that word belief. They obviously believed by being devout, but they were not baptized. They simply were devout. They were Jews from all nations, gathered at Jerusalem here for Pentecost. And keep in mind the historical aspect that we've learned over the last number of messages from uh, Brother Adrian and Deacon Jan about the, the historical text and, uh, and background of the times. These were people who believed God worked through the priesthood, that Jerusalem was the centerpiece, that he worked through the patriarchs of the family. All of this Jewish tradition, as we know, and even perverted to the point of being an unequal system, that God worked through specific functions and relationships with, with the Creator. And for some, like women, like youth, they had several intermediaries between them and God. Priests, fathers, husbands. And we, we're familiar with some of that historical background that we've heard in recent weeks. So we take these emotions, the confusion, the amazement, the devoutness, the mocking, and after three scriptures, and whatever would be a typical sermon of the time, 30 minutes, one hour, we don't know if this was the entire text of what Peter talked about, or perhaps it's an encapsulation that Luke writes later on, looking back, we don't know. But all of these emotions, confusion, amazement, we now drop down to verse 37. And these same people, some of these same people, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, brothers, what do we do now? What shall we do now? So in the course of one message, they've gone from being confused, amazed, not sure, mocking, even mocking, to tell us what we do now. Tell us what we do. They were ready to go all in to this way of life. What a, this is simply miraculous. How were they cut to the heart? How was it then in the course of one message, they were cut to the heart that much that they took all their chips and said, we're going all in on this one? <clears throat> Peter showed them that this way of life that Christ came to show could be found in the pages of their Hebrew scriptures. This wasn't something new. That their very own Hebrew scriptures showed that this was a way of life that Christ came to give them. This was not new, but had been part of their plan, part of the plan throughout their story history. Let's look at verse 17. Peter starts out, and again, we won't take time to go verbatim through here to do the whole thing, but just notice what Christ is talking. He's using their Hebrew scriptures to show that this plan of God, this freedom in Christ, was something that was from the foundation here, that it was part of their scriptures. And it shall come to pass, he's quoting Joel here, he takes a passage and quotes the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And we can look at this passage and say, well, look what God's going to do. God's going to have uh, God's going to have uh, you preach, and and this is not all about the changing of the the liturgy of a congregation. Look at what it says here. It's not going to go through the priesthood. It's not going to be these special men that everything goes to. God is going to pour out His Spirit on everybody. Eventually, you won't even have to be a Jew to have this. God's going to pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And you know what? Kids will talk to kids. Your sons and your young men will see visions. Look at our our youth over the course of the last six months. Stuff is starting to go off from their heads. They will see visions. They will start to understand. It won't just be hearing their, their parents talking. God will start working with youth. God will start working with men servants and maid servants. He's going to pour his spirit on everybody. You don't have to be a Jewish man to be tied in, to be plugged into God. This is what Peter is trying to tell them. And this is what Joel was saying centuries before. This is nothing brand new that all of a sudden this is... Maybe they didn't see it, maybe they didn't understand it. But it's there for the record that this is what God had intended from the very beginning. And whoever... All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Now, hold that thought. We're going to get to that a little bit later and explain that little that little uh, uh, statement. It's, it's, it's fascinating, actually. We'll see that a little bit later in another passage. All will have access to God. And again, it's not about change, changing in the church speaking structure, but showing that God would not limit who he would have an intimate relationship with. He will have an intimate relationship with anyone who wants to have that with him. Man, woman, child, all would have access. And this is from the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. This leads into verses 22 to 24, talking about Jesus Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. He was right here. You saw it yourselves. They couldn't deny that. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined knowledge and determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Again, pointing back that this, this, this is nothing new. If they had been paying attention and understanding the scriptures, this is nothing new and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So now, we're transitioning into this, you put this man to death, but guess what? He's raised. And this is that amazing step, and next step in the plan of understanding, that the grave can't hold, but God doesn't want to be held. And this, this prophet that they believe they killed is now raised, and sitting at the right hand of God. And here he then goes into quoting Psalm 16. And part of that message was to explain to them that this Christ that they killed because they were afraid of his message has now risen and sits at God's right hand. Their patriarchs are dead and buried. They go into David. Uh, Peter then, once he finishes with quoting Psalm 16, he talks about David. And again, you can read the account for yourself. We don't have time to, to, be specific, to go through the entire chapter word for word. But their patriarchs are dead and buried. The men they revered, the men that they look up to the, in their scriptures are dead and buried. But the man they killed because they were afraid is risen and sits at God's right hand. Which they were there to tell them because they saw. Let's notice, pick out one verse here. Verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. We saw this. 
So it's not it's not it's not reading Hebrew scripture and debating whether it's story or fact. We were there. We're telling we're here to tell you. Twelve of us are here to tell you. We saw it. We saw it. You put him to death, but he's risen. We saw him, we saw him alive. You killed him, and now he is in heaven with God and is God. Verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So you put him to death, God raised him up. Not only raised him up, he crowned him with many crowns, made him Lord and Christ. That brings them to verse 37, when they said, what should we do? What do we do now? And the response was, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. Be baptized now, he said. What do we do? Be baptized. Go all in on this. If, 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 if you understand it, if you get it, if you see the fact that this is that this is God's plan, raising Christ up, making him God, this hope of the resurrection, go all in. Be part of this. This freedom is waiting for you. God wants to forgive you so that you're free from your guilt, of your past, and then wants to give you his spirit so that you become the person he always envisioned. The human condition is to maintain your pattern of thinking. Perhaps that's what I was struggling with. I wanted all the benefits of marriage. She was my best friend. We wanted to build a life together. But there was a change. It was the, the fear of change, I suppose. Because for my entire life, I was who I was. lived at my parents' home. I had it. And this was an exciting time. But when it came time to commit, there's fear that comes to mind. What if I fail? What if this? Looking back. When we're scared of commitment to any relationship, it's the fear of the change of our mindset. It's supernatural to change your pattern of thinking. We get in a rut, we have our own mindset. Repentance is to change. The meaning is to, to, to reverse directions, to go from disobeying God to following God. And it's a supernatural change. Baptism is the supernatural process of changing one's pattern of thinking. And what a transformation for these people. From doubt from mocking, from all of the emotions we looked at, to belief, to going, we're in. 3,000 of us, we're all in on this. And with continuing on, we're going to touch on the second point here. We're going to introduce the second point by transitioning to verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Were they perfect? Perhaps I was afraid <coughs> of failure. Perhaps I was afraid of dropping the ball, not knowing exactly how to be a husband. God doesn't expect me at the beginning of a marriage to know how to be a husband. Over 17 years, I hope I have become a better husband and a better father. 
as I've learned. But when we, we, we look at this relationship with God, and I can, I can go back to examples in, in my youth of people who were afraid because they didn't know enough. I remember an example of someone, and I won't, I won't mention names, but it was when I was a young, a young boy, delaying their baptism because they simply didn't know enough. Here, they jumped all in and then went and studied. Because quite often, and we see this in the, in the, uh, the times in our life where we make changes, whether it's a milestones, I'm looking for the word milestones. Milestones in our life, we often look as graduation points or ending points, when often they're quite the beginning points. You look at a marriage, a, a wedding, it's the start of life. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the graduation into marriage. It's the birth of a marriage. You look at a graduation from high school. It's, it almost looks like the end of a process. It's really the start of real life. You look at the birth of a child. You, you know everything about being a parent until that child is born. And then you realize uh, you've got an entire lifetime to figure this out. You look at, we even discussed last week at the conference, that an ordination is often looked at as graduation into ministry. It's only when you're ordained that you now need to be taught how to be a minister. Uh, the same thing goes true for, for a baptism. These people here understood, they're not sure what they do, but they knew this was enough to go all in, and now they spent their time studying. Now they spent their time using this Holy Spirit to make them better. That day, 3,000 said, I'm in. Can you imagine 3,000 souls? They were already devout. They already had some background. They understood the culture. They were in Jerusalem keeping the feast. They had come to Jerusalem. So they had some background. They had some respect for God. They had knowledge of His ways. They just needed a call to action. They weren't perfect. They had not become perfect in the knowledge of Scripture. But it was after the receipt of the Holy Spirit that they jumped in to study even more. Go with us to Acts 22. Acts 22. That's what was read during the scripture reading. And when we look at it, it's Paul's recounting of his own personal conversion. And when we look at it, there are some amazing things to know. He recounts his conversion here. And as we're reading it, remember his past in his persecution of Christ and his persecution of the other followers. Now what happened, verse 6, as I journeyed, again looking back many years ago, it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. I just, I killed you years ago. Now you're telling me you're alive. I, I, put, I helped put you to death. And those, verse 9, who were with me, indeed saw the light and were afraid. So we had some backup that something was strange here. But they didn't hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? The same statement that the 3,000 made. What shall I do now? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, a 
according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up, and then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be witness to all men of whom you have seen and heard, of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? The King James says, tarry not. Tarry not. God looked, God, Christ, in his conversation here with Saul, who became false, says, what are you waiting for? What are, are you waiting to be better? Are you waiting to know more? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So Paul has the same reaction these others do. What shall I do? Just tell me, Lord, what to do. And through the, the mouth of Ananias, God tells him, what are you waiting for? Go all in. If, this is, if you know this is right, go all in. Now the same phrase, calling on the name of the Lord, we saw back in Acts chapter 2, is the Greek word, the, the Greek word for calling on the name. That, that phrase is one Greek word. And it's 1941 in Strong's, and it's epikaleo. And it means to be surnamed. One of the means is to be surnamed. So it's not just as we hear, you know, just say the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You're asking, make me one of yours. I don't want to be palmetier anymore. I want to be child of God. I want to take on the name of God. It says here, be baptized, wash away your sins. And in essence, this means take God's name as your own. Become begotten. Become an heir to his kingdom. His kingdom. Calling on the name of the Lord to become surnamed. So not just not necessarily calling on the name of the Lord, but taking on the name of the Lord is probably a better translation. And much more meaningful, obviously. So the message to Paul was clear. You have a past. There's no denying that. You have a past. And frankly, it's not a good one. All that you did was not good. This is even more reason not to go. Get down there, be baptized, give your life to God so that he can wash away your past. So that it doesn't drag you down. Take on his name. Don't just become devout. Become a child of God. Become an heir of this great life in his kingdom that awaits us. Tarry not was what Paul heard. And again, we can look back at our lives at various relationships, and I've used the example Years ago, Lisa and I were, were getting together, and for whatever reason, I was dawdling. For the life of me, I still can't figure out why. I throw some reasons out there. I don't know why, but I dawdled for a long time. First Corinthians chapter seven. We covered that. It was covered a little bit in downstairs in the Bible study today with the youth. First Corinthians chapter seven. We're going to go on to the second point that we're going to look at. So we see the the mass transformation of a group of 3,000 souls from doubting and mocking to going all in to this way of life. And we see God's ammunition, God's ammunition, I don't know where I came from. Admonition, that's what I was going for, sorry. God's admonition to Paul, to Terry not. We now transition into the third point that I'd like to cover today. We'll 
jump into the context at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. There's a whole lot in this passage in 1 Corinthians, but we often pick this out. And this verse shows God's immense mercy. He grants special status to the families of believers. They receive access, they receive protection, they receive God's divine presence in their lives because of the actions of others. Much like the descendants of Abraham benefited from God's covenant several thousand years before and continue to derive benefit from that covenant. But it does not replace baptism. They are sanctified, yes. Much like that word devout that we are using. Set apart and holy, absolutely. Access to God, for sure. But it doesn't replace final commitment. Before Lisa and I were married, there was no other one for me. But we still weren't married. And for a year and a half beforehand, we dated no one else. We spoke on the phone most nights. We were completely, totally committed to one another. I was very devout to Lisa. But there's devout and there's married. There's almost all the way there and then there's all the way there and there's a difference. It doesn't replace commitment. It seems to me, again, that we could liken this to this word devout. Apollos, Cornelius, the 3,000. All were noted as devout, but they still needed to be baptized. Paul still needed to be baptized. Cornelius still needed to be baptized. The 3,000, despite their devoutness, still needed to be baptized. That was the instruction. What do we do now? Paul could have said, or Peter could have said, everything's good, you're devout, you follow, you, you believe God. Just just keep coming, just keep doing what you're doing, keep doing what you're doing. No, the instruction was, you must be baptized. You need to be baptized. Lisa knew I loved her. She, was not look, she wasn't looking for anyone else at that point in her life. But until I made a promise to commit, there would always be something lacking. There would always be something lacking. We could call ourselves special friends. We could call ourselves fiancé. We could be exclusive, but not married. Not married. And not able to truly enjoy the gifts that marriage has to offer, like children. What the scripture doesn't tell us is how long this special status lasts. It says we have special status, those who are related to members. How long one is set aside as sanctified? It doesn't say. How long is a child set aside? Their entire life? While they're under the rule of their parents? While they live under the home of their parents? It doesn't say, I don't have the answers, I'm not professing to have answers. Simply throwing questions at What if one marriage partner dies and the marriage covenant ends? Does that affect sanctification? I'm only asking the question. I do not profess to know the answer. But they drive us to the final point that we always remain accountable for what we know. God holds us accountable for what we know. And as we're listening to this, we think of the people that will darken our doors and be on this journey where they're unsure. And we've made that commitment, and we're sure of this way of life, but they will have these exact same questions. So if we are baptized, 
use this information to, to understand your commitment, to recommit, but to also be there for others who will darken our doors. Because as we've said before, we are a family and we all have something to offer those who come to this back door, who darken our doors. And they will, have, they will have questions, and it's up to us to have the answers for them. Romans chapter 1. We are accountable for what we know. Romans chapter 1. that surrounds us that points us to God and yet so many refuse to accept and deny it is of God and yet we here are blessed to know the difference Matthew 13 we were there in the first half we'll go back to Matthew 13 look at it from look at the same the same passage see the difference between partway and all the way. And here he's quoting, as Brother Gord said, he's quoting Isaiah 6, and evidently, which I wasn't aware of, six, five other places. Five other places. Verse 12. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from there comes a point when God says, okay, enough's enough. They've had their time. They've had their chances. I don't know 
who that affects. I don't. That's not. That's not for me to know. I don't know when that will be. But at some point, God says they've had enough time. They've had enough time. Quoting Isaiah six, look at verse fourteen. You hearing, you will hear and not understand. In seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. They weren't dull, but they grew dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes are closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. There comes a point where God needs us to go all the way. He needs us all in so that he can heal us. There's, this isn't everything to know about baptism. In fact, as we said, it's, this message was about commitment, not specifically baptism. We can apply commitment to every relationship in our life. There's so much more we could talk about. But for those who have already ta- taken the plunge, as I titled this, we can't take for granted the gifts that God has bestowed upon us for our commitment. And don't be afraid to share those with those who need encouragement. And there will be people that walk through here that will be at various stages and need encouragement, and need guidance, and need perhaps a, just a, a touch on the backside too. As I needed all those years ago, I needed that deadline of the cars pulling out for the feast in the morning. And we've said this is going to happen before I go to the feast. And we wait right up, I waited right up until the last possible minute. And it was done at its importance over at Donut, if you can believe that. Glad I did it, but Tim Hortons over a coffee and a donut. My sister was at the top of CN Tower, at the top of the CN Tower, and it was planned many months in advance. There's the difference. All in, or almost all in, there's a difference. To our youth, there will come a time when you need to decide for yourselves. As you become adults, as you transition into adulthood, you will eventually go away to school, start jobs, start your own lives, and leave the daily protection of your parents' homes. Take God with you on that journey. Make him your God, not just the God of your parents. You're as important to God as your parents are. Baptism at the proper age shows God how important he is to you. So how do you know when is the right time to commit? I knew I wanted to marry Lisa. That was very clear. There was not a shred of doubt in my mind. Not one. But knowing I wanted to and actually asking were two different things. What would have happened had I waited too long? What would have happened? Would she have waited for me forever? She loved me. I knew that. But how long would she have waited? This week, unknowingly, in preparation for this this message, she didn't know. I asked her how long she would have waited. Because it's come up in conversation from time to time about how I handled that transition. She claims, she says, she would wait. She would have waited forever. I don't know how you could wait forever. But she said she would have. But look out. Look at what we would have missed out on. Had I waited. Had I waited even longer than I did. This way of life is a great gift that God has prepared for us. 
and it's available to all. It frees us from our past. It provides resources like the Holy Spirit to help us help mold us into the person God wants us to be. But it requires full commitment and willing hearts. It requires what the 3,000 back in AD 31 had, and that was an all-in heart. I'm all in. It requires what Paul learned at the feet of Jesus Christ, and that was to tarry not. Give God a reason to wait. And that's something that we can take to those who darken our doors and are questioning. What are you waiting for? Give God a reason, a justifiable reason, of what you're waiting not to go on. He doesn't expect us. To, he doesn't expect them to be perfect. He didn't expect us to be perfect. He didn't expect us to have all knowledge. He didn't know what it was like to be a parent. He didn't know what it was like to be a husband. I know now, and I'll continue to learn. And know that we are held to account for what we do know. At some point, God says, "Okay, are you in or are you out?" Recall the passage where the door of, the doors get closed. Door, the door of the marriage, of the marriage uh, supper eventually gets closed. And that's certainly not to scare those that come in here, but it's an encouragement to say, what are we waiting for? This is so good. And we, we here live lives and have, and have this, this commitment here amongst us that we can be an encouragement to those people who were in the same stages of doubt that I was all those years ago. This gift has been waiting for us from the foundation of the world. But let's conclude with Paul's admonition to the Hebrews. Let's go to the first chapter of Hebrews. As we conclude, we'll conclude with this scripture. Hebrews chapter 1. And verse 13. And we'll proceed into the first little bit of chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels, and again he asks rhetorically here quoting the Psalms, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? This is what awaits for those who go all in. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.